This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Good evening, everyone. First, I would like to bring into the room my blood ancestors, you know, my parents and their parents and their parents before that. My chosen family, Buddhism says, because <laughs> regardless of what you think of your parents now, Buddhism says you have the teachings of Buddhism say that you have chosen them. I also want to bring into the room my spiritual family, all the many Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, because of whose practice and dedication, their realization, all of this has made it possible for me to, um, first of all, find the Dharma, encounter the Dharma, and then in, in whatever humble way to devote my life to it. And I also want to invoke the ancestors of this land. I am in Mayan land now. Writers, architects, mathematicians, astronomers, extraordinaire. Perhaps in some very tiny bit in my genes as well. And so I want to pay homage to all of them and ask for their blessings and their guidance. <clears throat> now, there's a type of suffering that for most of us is like an eyelash on the back of your, your hand. It's barely noticeable. But for a bodhisattva, that eyelash is in your, their eye. And it's constant and it's excruciating. And they'll do anything to extirpate it. This was a conversation that I had recently with a good friend, a Kalyanamitra, a noble friend and a fellow teacher. And we had arrived we had arrived at this eyelash <clears throat> via an exploration of the three types of suffering that the Buddha described. So first there is the suffering of suffering, dukkha, dukkha, aptly named. There is the suffering of change, viparinama dukkha, and all-pervasive suffering, sankara dukkha. And the first is obvious suffering, right? The loss of a partner, loss of a job, 
aging, illness, death, physical pain, emotional pain. It is known suffering, and it is what we all see, what we all feel at some point, if we're paying attention. The suffering of change is a little bit more hidden, if you will, in pleasant experiences. It's that delicious taste in your mouth, a bit of cake, something savory that does not last. It's the end of that wonderful vacation the fading of love or pleasure. And so this type of suffering is harder. It's harder to recognize. And, you know, sometimes when you talk about it, it seems seems like such a bummer. You know, like, why are you spoiling my joy? And, 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 And sometimes people will complain. In fact, I remember saying at a certain point, but what about those experiences where everything feels so whole, so full, so complete, and I feel so fulfilled, there's no trace left. But then think about that fulfillment being dependent, right? Being conditioned on the eating of that cake, the eating of a cookie, and the fact that I can taste it, right? When the cookie is gone, my pleasure is gone. And I can't just conjure that kind of satisfaction. I can't sit here now and will myself to feel that fulfillment. It is dependent. It is transient, and that is how change is suffering, and that is how pleasure contains in it suffering. And finally, there's that pervasive suffering, which I would say for most of us is hard not to feel. I think we all feel it at some point. But to really be able to recognize it and then to name it, not so much, right? I speak of this as a a shimmering, right? That low thrum over everything. It gives me that that constant feeling that something is, is off. And I was reflecting that when I was younger, I would feel this, especially as the sun was going down. But in the light of day, I was able to to busy myself. And there was something about that that light, I suppose, and that spaciousness. But at dusk, that unease. And if I'm honest, a little bit of fear would come up. And it wasn't that I was afraid of anything in particular. I mean, it took me years to realize I was just scared of being. I mean, we think we're scared of death, but really we're scared of living. And eventually, I was able to to recognize that this 
kind of suffering was not dependent on anything. It was there because I was there. <clears throat> and I would look around, you know, in my, in my life, and I, would, and I would wonder, you know, are people really happy with this, you know, with life, with things? Because I'm not, not in a, in a fundamental way. And so what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I was, I was going to say fortunate, but really I was blessed to come across a path that assured me very plainly and very directly that there was nothing wrong with me, that I wasn't broken and that things weren't broken but that there was a reason, there was a reason for me feeling the way that I did. And that was such a profound, profound relief. You know, to understand that because I am, there is an element of that that is suffering. Not all of it, of course, but it's, it's, it does, it, it is that, that, it, like, it seeps into everything, right? Like a drop of ink in water. And yet, the Buddha said, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to live with an eyelash in your eye. Because what happens is we just get used to it. If we notice it, we adapt, and we're very good generally speaking, at adapting. But the Buddha said, you don't have to be in pain all the time. You don't have to walk around half-blinded. So first, realize you have an eyelash in your eye. And so it doesn't matter how many vacations you take, how many delicious meals you have, how many titles or memories, experiences you accumulate the eyelash will still be there. And so you need to focus on getting it out. And when you look at it this way, it just, it just kind of makes sense, right? So when the Buddhist teachings are saying that pleasure, possessions, praise, or fame won't make us happy, they're not saying don't enjoy yourself. They don't saying, they're not saying don't have anything. They're simply saying, watch. What happens? Because it doesn't last. But there is something that lasts. And to look for it, you don't have to go far. And so again, at first you notice the eyelash. You notice that it hurts all the time. Sometimes you notice it more, sometimes you notice it less, but it's there. And two, you vow to do anything that you can right, to get it out. And I was just saying to someone, I think it's one of the reasons the teachings are so insistent on the preciousness of the human life, on the, 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 the unlikely probability that here you are with this healthy enough 
human body, human mind, and that you have encountered a path. Perhaps there are other ways to get it out, that eyelash. But this is a very effective one. Three, get to the point where you see there's no eyelash, no eye. Right? These are the teachings of the Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And at least the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines is, is always hammering that message. A bodhisattva does not stand on form. They do not stand on perception or in feeling or in will or in consciousness. They don't stand on the, in the skandhas. In Dharma's true nature alone, she is standing. Then that is her practice of wisdom, the higher perfection. But where is the Dharma? Where's the Dharma's true nature, <coughs> which is empty? So how can you stand in it? Exactly. That's number four. The sutra says you can't stand on emptiness. So don't try to stay there. And five, then recognize, because that, mm, that, that stance of trying to stay on emptiness would be, there's an eyelash in my eye, I'll just pluck out my eye. It sounds a little ridiculous when you say it, but I was just reading an article that essentially was saying that's what early Buddhism is saying. I don't think that's what the Buddha was saying. I think he was saying, having recognized there's no eye, and there's no eyelash, and there's nothing to take out, you take a next step. Like that, that, that koan on the top of a hundred-foot pole. How do you step forward? Recognize that that I and your, your whole being is resplendent. It is luminous. It is loving. It is unfailingly kind. It is wise beyond measure. But you can't see that because you have this tiny bit of hair in your eye. All of this I was speaking about with my good friend. And afterwards I thought, you know, maybe it takes us a little bit of pain to realize I am so much more, so much more than my complaints, my opinions, my secret grudges. I'm so much more than my karma. So much more than my pain, my longing. I am so much more vast. So much more inconceivable. And that is what the Vajrayana expresses so well. That is why it's such a... Um, food, nutriment, to speak to this friend. Because every time I speak with her, I am fired up anew. <laughs> about the Dharma is the best gift that she can give me. I don't know that she even knows that she's giving me this gift. Right? But those are the two great gifts, the gift of fearlessness and the gift of Dharma. So actually, let me take a moment 
Let me take a moment to speak of Kalyanamitra, this noble friend. I've touched on it in the past. When somebody asked the Buddha what was admirable or noble friendship, he said, it's when a lay person spends time with other lay people who are, quote unquote, advanced in virtue. People who are wise, people who are generous, people who are honest and have conviction, the sutra says, which I think of as they know who they are, right? They know where they stand, what's the ground that they're standing on, which is their own being. And so when you need it, they can share some of that ground. They may not even know they're doing so, but simply by their, their, their being, their, their, their words, perhaps. The Buddha also said that a friend that is worth cultivating has seven qualities. They give what is beautiful. They give what is hard to give. They do what is hard to do. They endure painful or ill-spoken words. They tell you their secrets, which I thought was interesting, and they keep yours. And they don't abandon you when you're low, right? So when you're in need, they don't abandon you. And then the last one, they, look, they don't look down on you. And he says, a person in whom these traits are found is a friend to be cultivated by anyone wanting a friend. It's such a beautiful, I think, and such a simple list. And, and I had read it before, and so I just took a moment to reflect on my friendships. And, you know, whether they uh, checked <laughs> these characteristics. And I'll have you know that they did. They did. I have a, you know, I have, of course, as, as I think so many of us do, different, different levels of friendship. But, but you could say those friends that, especially in the last few years, I have taken the time and energy and, and care to cultivate. They give me what is beautiful. They give what is hard to give um, their time when they may not have much. Sometimes there is this so. Suisse or Vanessa, are you sure? Have you thought about it this way? They do what is hard to do, which I think, I mean, that can be so many things, but first and foremost, simply to step out of your own way to be there fully for somebody else. They tell me their secrets. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe over time, some of them have. They keep mine. Well, I hope, <laughs> I hope I've gotten to a point in my life where I no longer have secrets to keep. It, it's, it's a little bit of an odd mm, requisite <laughs> for the Buddha to, to list, but so it is. They don't abandon you when you're low. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were there to pick me up. And they, for sure, did not look down on me. 
And so, you know, any good friend will provide, I think, I hope, this kind of support. But a noble friend also will steer you in the direction of the Dharma. And I don't mean necessarily by, by preaching or teaching, unless, you know, that's appropriate, but by their actions, right? Their words, their demeanor. They might help you to see what that thing is that is blurring your vision, that thing in your eye. Maybe they'll reach over and ever so gently just blow that eyelash out. And maybe they'll do it without even knowing that they're doing it. I think, I, I think one of you, I think Shaho told a story of a similar story to this, but um, someone did. Uh, years ago, I was um, at the monastery and it was Sishin, our silent retreat. And it was probably about halfway through the week and I was having a really difficult time. <clears throat> I was very distressed and just uh, struggling. But of course, you're in silence. And I take my seat in the dining hall to have supper. And my teacher, Shugen Roshi, sits down next to me. And the moment he did that, how can I describe it? Um, it was like that shimmering just got quiet. Now, he wasn't talking to me. He wasn't even looking at me. He was looking at his food. He was just there. And I'm fairly certain that he had no idea what he gave me that time. <clears throat> but inside me, everything changed. How? How does that happen? I think another one of those, uh, those um, hard things, you know, to do what is hard to do, <clears throat> is that, a, that a, a, a noble friend is able to endure, or at least tolerate, my discomfort, my sadness, my pain. I have said this before, right? That I so appreciate when a friend says to me, that must be so painful. I am so sorry you're going through this difficult time. Instead of, it's okay, you're going to be okay. I'd rather they not rush to comfort or reassure me. I'd rather, if they can, to have the courage and the strength to be with what is in that moment, just as it is, messy, indefinite, or just downright distressing. Sometimes that is how it is, right? And to just be with, that to me is the true comfort. The next step, you know, let's look for the solution, let's look for different ways, let's, you know, rah, rah, you can do this. That's great too. But not before, oh, this is how it is. How challenging.
when asked, when asked what were the necessary conditions for awakening, the Buddha said to have admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. This is the first prerequisite for the development of the wings to self-awakening. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, go sit in seclusion. He didn't say living by clear ethical principles, developing strong concentration, cultivating wisdom. He said, having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. That is the first step to awakening. And this is the Buddha who was left by his friends when he stopped doing the ascetic practices that almost killed him, who left behind the teachers whom he knew had taught him all that they could teach, who was alone when he realized himself, though not really, of course, the moment he realized himself. But he said, the first thing you need is to have good people around you. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes I, I wonder who are the actual scribes, you know, of these sutras. Because sometimes some of these sutras are just so heady, right, and so abstract. And then now, now and then you get one and it's so warm and it's so loving. I want to think that the Buddha was all of that. <clears throat> In a story I once read, um, uh, two friends, are walking through the Ramble in Central Park. You know it? It's a, um, a wild place in the center of a place that is wilder still. The writer described it as resplendent and emerald, especially in the early summer sun. And so one of the friends steps over this little metal fence and goes into a, a thicket to stand in front of a tree. And the second friend just sees a tree among all these other trees. <clears throat> and the first one says, well, what do you think? And what do I think of what? You know, she's thinking in her mind, I mean, it's just a tree. But the other one says, no, 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 I mean, look how the branches, they duck and they curl around the others in search of the light. But that second friend, thinks in generalizations, in abstractions. And the first one lives in what is, what is tangible, what is fine, in the details. She'll point out a favorite brick in the facade of an old building. <clears throat> Just is that the one to the right of the door that is covered in lichen. A favorite letter of the alphabet, G, but only in lowercase and only in times a favorite aisle in the supermarket, the one with sauces and all the pickled ham. And every morning she sends out text to her uh, friend. Have you noticed the clouds? I saw along the highway a sign 
It said, Romeo, retired old man eating out. How are the wings? She asks, because the two of them have a, a, an, an inside joke that they're angels in disguise. The first friend is astonished constantly. And she can't get enough of life. And so when she dies early, unexpectedly, the second friend begins to notice the things she never noticed before. Like how the, the belly of the G is like a, a spring coiled to hold up the head of a letter. She hears the tone of a friend talking to another friend, but I'm not like that, which tells her she's exactly like that. The gray a grass, uh, the way a grasshopper sits, right, with its hind legs, they're kind of elevated. When you get close, because it's ready, it's about to spring at the slightest threat. And so she begins to notice all of these things that she never noticed before. She had never seen. And as she does this, she slowly fills her life with a real. And sometimes she even forgets that her friend is no longer there. Though she has a bench in the park, in Central Park, with a plaque. And she made sure in the sign to include a G, lowercase, in times. And sometimes when she sees a little piece of moss or a ray of, of slanting afternoon light, she remembers her friend's favorite phrase, which is, will you look at that? Will you look at that? In the connected discourses, the Buddha said, what is the friend of one on a journey? What is the friend in one's own home? What is the friend of one in need? And what is the friend in the future life? And then he himself answers, a caravan is the friend of one on a journey. A parent is a friend of one in, in, in one's own home. A colleague, when the need arises, is one's friend again and again. The deeds of merit one has done, that is the friend in the future life. A caravan, a parent, a colleague, and merit. I love this reference to merit as a friend. I had never seen that before. Just this week, I was writing right, that as a, a practitioner who turns toward the Dharma has four qualities. They listen, they destroy, they endure, and they go fast. And these qualities cause them to be a field of merit for the world. Now, merit, we haven't talked about it very much in, in this group, in this Sangha, but merit or punya in Buddhism is considered a protective force. And it accumulates as we do good deeds. And that includes words, that includes thoughts. I think of merit as something that, that is good, that attracts good, that propitiates good. 
Right? So to be a field of merit in the world, according to this sutra, and I don't have the name for it here, I'll put it on the website, is we have to listen, we have to destroy, endure, and go fast. And this is likened to a royal elephant. And the practitioner, I mean, they listen when they pay attention to, right? They engage wholeheartedly and take heed of the Buddha's teaching. But that, that last one, heedfulness, it's such a great word. And it's so often used in Buddhism. Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us must strive to awaken, awaken, take heed. Do not squander your life. Right, the evening gatha, chanted at the end of the day in a monastery. Take heed, it's saying, you know, don't let your life pass you by. And so this is the same way to listen to the Dharma, right, with a sense of, of urgency and the determination to bring it into our lives. So, so, you know, I know people do this all the time, and I do it, I've done it. You know, you listen to a talk as you're, you know, chopping your vegetables where you're making dinner. I mean, that's okay, but that's not quite taking heed. Sorry to say. In order for it to, to, to do its work, in order for that Buddha to be speaking to a Buddha, you know, you can't just be messing with broccoli and sprouts. It, it, you, you have to come to it and you have to bring it in, bring it close. To destroy is to destroy what is malicious, what is cruel. I think of it also as anything that obscures that inherent clarity of mind. I mean, the sutra actually states a practitioner obliterates any unskillful qualities. Right? This is it. We, we give them up for the sake of liberation. So it's not, you know, that's not going to help me. It's unskillful. I turn away. I mean, it obliterates. There's a time to be gentle and loving, and there's a time to say enough. There's a time to cut. Like, like Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, cutting delusion at its root. The only thing to do with a poisonous thought, for example, is to cut it at the root before it has a chance to bloom. <coughs> and what is poisonous? I mean, there's the obvious, and then there's the subtle. We endure when we endure physical pain, discomfort, heat and cold. The sutra says the threat of insects, or reptiles, mosquitoes, wild animals, and also rude and unwelcome criticism. I mean, really, that you're not swayed from your meditation. Think of, of Mara saying to the Buddha on the eve of his enlightenment, who do you think you are to do this? Nobody has ever done this before. What makes you think that you can? Enlightenment? 
That's pretty gutsy of you. And very calmly, the Buddha touches the earth, what is called the earth witness mudra, and he asks the earth to be his witness. And essentially says to Mara, I know you. I know you. I know you doubt. I know you self-loathing. I know your relentless criticism, confusion. And I'm not going to let you win. <coughs> I don't mean forget tigers and reptiles and environmental collapse. Well, don't forget it. But I mean, we're our worst enemies in, in the world that is our life. And then finally, a practitioner goes fast by going where they've never gone before. And this is actually what the sutra says, going when they're with, where they've never gone before. They still their body and their mind. They let go of grasping. They put an end to the craving that keeps them trapped in an endless loop of pleasure and pain. That viparinama, viparinama. I'm pretty sure it's Viparinama Dukkha. And they realize cessation. But we're going fast right now in the direction of our own freedom, of liberation. Even though I think most of the time it does not feel fast at all. But we are going where we haven't gone before. Every time you let go of an unskillful thought, Every time you wonder whether you should believe everything that you think. Remember, I wrote in one of those um, previous newsletters, is this a satisfying thought? Every time you stop and wonder, you ask yourself that, you're going against the stream. Every time we do that, we're vowing to be good to ourselves and to one another. We're vowing to be Kalyanamitra to ourselves. Let me repeat that. Every time we work with our thoughts, with our emotions in this way, we're being good to ourselves and to one another. <coughs> and so, heedfulness, determination, stamina, courage, all of these, and many more qualities, of course, are needed to become the person that we've always been, that, that noble friend, that admirable friend, and a supreme merit, a supreme field of merit, for the world. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.